Good evening. The Senate says no to $15 an hour. The Pope visits Iraq. The International Criminal Court opens an investigation into war crimes, both by the State of Israel and the Palestinian group Hamas. And the battle over police reforms in New York intensifies. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, March 5th, 2021. Pope Francis opened the first ever papal visit to Iraq on Friday with a plea for the country to protect its centuries-old diversity, urging Muslims to embrace their Christian neighbors as a precious resource and asking the embattled Christian community, though small like a mustard seed, to persevere. Francis brushed aside the coronavirus pandemic and security concerns to resume his globe-trotting papacy after a year-long hiatus under COVID-19 restrictions in Vatican City. The trip will include a visit to historic Babylon and the birthplace of Abraham, patriarch of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and a meeting with a top-level Shia official. The Pope donned a face mask during the flight from Rome, but the mask came off when Francis sat down to talk for the first time in history with Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, one of the most influential religious authorities in the Muslim world. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about the meeting with the Iranian allied religious leader. The president believes that the path forward uh, is diplomacy, should always be led by diplomacy. But I don't have the details of their meeting or or I'm sure they may do a readout of sorts. um, And if so, we're happy to give a comment on it. White House Press Secretary Saki Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani is 90 years old. Pope Francis is 84. And in more news from the Middle East, Israelis are a step closer to facing war crimes prosecutions for actions against the Palestinians. The International Criminal Court ruled that this week. It has jurisdiction to probe allegations of war crimes in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. Charges could be leveled at Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, defense ministers, and any other high-level officials. The United States rejected the ruling, and Israel charged the decision was anti-Semitic. A State Department spokesperson had this to say. We firmly oppose and are disappointed by the ICC prosecutor's announcement of an investigation into the Palestinian situation. Uh, We will continue to uphold our strong commitment to Israel and its security, including by opposing actions that seek to target Israel unfairly. Palestinians do not qualify uh, as a sovereign state and therefore are not qualified to obtain membership as a state in or to participate as a state in or to delegate jurisdiction to the ICC. The United States has always taken the position that the court's jurisdiction should be reserved for countries that consent to it or that are referred by the UN Security Council. As we made clear when the Palestinians purported to join the Rome Statute in 2015, again, we do not believe the Palestinians qualify as a sovereign state and therefore are not qualified to obtain membership as a state or to participate as a state in international organizations, and that includes in the ICC. And the United States is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. But Code Pink peace activist Ariel Gold says both the United Nations and ICC have long ruled that Palestine has rights of statehood within the world body. This case was brought by the Palestinian Authority or the PLO, and it addresses war crimes that were committed both by Israel and by Hamas during the 2014 Israeli assault on Gaza. That's when Israel killed over 2,000 Palestinians, 
over 1,500 of which were civilians and over 500 of which were children. Comparatively, I believe the number is 67 Israeli soldiers were killed, and I believe that it was also four Israeli civilians. Then it also looks at the 2018 border fence protests called the Great March of Return, where Palestinians in Gaza decided to have a large, massive, peaceful march, and they became weekly marches, to try to return to the homes and lands that they were expelled from in 1948 inside Israel proper, Israel responded to these almost entirely peaceful protests with live sniper fire. They actually intentionally shot into the lower part of the body to disable. And this isn't the first time that Israel has appeared to do this kind of thing to disable Palestinians because it's demoralizing for an entire generation to have all these disabilities. So there were enormous numbers of amputations from these sniper shootings. Then it also will likely look at the demolition of homes and villages in in the West Bank to make way for settlements and settlement expansion that forced expulsion which has, in many cases, that that's what this is, is classified as a war crime. Netanyahu has responded to this with the most grotesque falsehood by saying that this court case is the ultimate anti-Semitism. How is that? Well, it isn't (laughs) anti-Semitism. I don't think there's really any way to describe it as anti-Semitism. He says, in which the U.S. has backed up, that Israel is being targeted unfairly. The International Criminal Court has gone after many others, and like I said, the case also includes bringing Hamas up on war crimes. What this really does, this this false alarm of anti-Semitism, is it dilutes the real dangers of anti-Semitism, which are rapidly and very dangerously on the rise right now as somebody of uh, Jewish faith um, am horribly uh, disturbed when these false accusations are made because it prevents many people from being able to recognize and call out and work against the rising tide of anti-Semitism that actually is happening. Where does it go from here? The chief prosecutor... Uh, She'll be ending her term and somebody else will be coming in. It's actually going to take quite a long time. These are long, long years and years and years processes. But we have seen in the news that Israel has been informing a number of their military higher-ups who may be indicted in this and may have trouble traveling to various places that are party to the ICC. Ariel Gold is with the group Code Pink. And in the United States, the battle against COVID-19 continues. In New York City, for example, the seven-day average shows 25,265 cases, 1,795 hospitalizations, and 405 confirmed deaths, all numbers that are decreasing. And in the entire United States, falling COVID-19 numbers have prompted five states – Texas, Mississippi, Iowa, Montana, and North Dakota to end statewide mask mandates. That's despite a continuing threat of infection by fast-spreading variants of the disease. One state, though, that's holding on to its COVID regulations for now is Alabama. 
Governor Kay Ivey spoke earlier this week. It definitely indication that we are moving in the right direction. And I certainly want to thank the people of Alabama once again for their tremendous help and support to get us where we are. Even with this positive news, however, Dr. Harris and I are both convinced that we need to get past Easter and hopefully allow more Alabamians to get their first shot before we take a step some other states have taken to remove the mask order altogether and lift other restrictions. More evidence that stereotypes should be avoided, Governor Kay Ivey of Alabama. But in response to the growing moves to dump the mask mandates and other social distancing rules adopted to fight the pandemic, the White House's senior COVID-19 advisor, Andy Slavitt, said, not so fast. We owe the public straight talk, whether the news is promising or challenging. Progress demonstrates we can defeat COVID-19, but it does not equal success. It may seem tempting in the face of all of this progress to try to rush back to normalcy as if the virus is in the rearview mirror. It's not. Now, years of watching football on TV has shown me that it's better to spike the football once you're safely in the end zone, not after you've made a couple of completions. The CDC and public health officials locally at the state level and nationally are all clear Wear a mask, not forever, but for now. Wear a mask now so we can get to a place where you don't have to. This is not just the voice of cautious public health experts. It is what businesses who want to remain open and many public officials of both parties who have lived through the last year are saying. White House Senior COVID Advisor Andy Slavitt. The United States Senate on Friday voted to reject a proposal sponsored by Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont, to raise the federal minimum wage to $15. The Senate voted 58 to 42 against an attempt to waive a procedural objection against adding the wage provisions to the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill. Seven Democrats and one independent who caucuses with Democrats voted against it. Bernie Sanders introduced his amendment today. I rise today. Uh, to offer an amendment to increase the federal minimum wage uh, from a starvation wage of $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour over a five-year period. As I think you know, the Congress has not raised the minimum wage since 2007. This legislation is the most consequential and significant legislation for working families that Congress has debated for many, many decades. Now, why is that? And the answer is that, as I think all Americans know, the last year, last year that we have gone through has been in so many ways the very worst year in our lifetimes. That's what it has been. 30 to 40 percent of Americans have literally given up on democracy. They are moving toward authoritarianism. They are hurting. Their kids are hurting. Their parents are hurting. And they look to Washington for help in their democratic society, and they don't see Washington responding. 
What they see year after year are policies which make the very, very rich richer, which enable large profitable corporations to not pay a nickel in taxes. This is a bill which will answer a profound question. Are we living in a democratic society where the U.S. Congress will respond to the needs of working families rather than just the wealthy and large corporations and their lobbyists? That's what today is about. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. President Biden had reiterated his strong support for the wage hike during a conference call with Senate Democrats last week and invited them to keep working on the wage increase. But it wasn't enough. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We agree with Senator Sanders, and the president is going to be standing right alongside him, fighting for an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour, because men and women who are working hard to make ends meet shouldn't be living at the poverty level. And he will use his political capital to get that done. I don't have anything to preview for you in terms of the order or the timeline, uh, but it remains a priority, uh, and it is something that the president would like to get done and will, will use his capital to do. I'll also add, just you didn't ask this, but there's been a little bit of a rumor mill, so I'm just going address it. You know, right now, as you know, we're focused on the American Rescue Plan, getting it through Congress. And the president and his team are not engaged in conversations or negotiations about lowering the threshold for the minimum wage. It's just to be crystal clear on that. Go ahead. That's the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The United States economy added 379,000 jobs in February. The unemployment rate dropped a tenth of a percentage point to 6.2 percent. It was the most positive jobs report since October, following two months of disappointing numbers, including the loss of an estimated 306,000 jobs in December. And it comes in the midst of the final negotiations over President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package. And you're listening to the news on WBS. AI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In Albany, Democrats in the state legislature began the process of scaling back Governor Andrew Cuomo's emergency COVID powers today, first granted nearly a year ago to issue pandemic-related orders. Cuomo would still be able to issue executive orders, as he was able to do prior to the pandemic. Existing orders will remain in effect, such as limits on public gatherings and mask wearing. The measure was approved in the Senate in the state Senate Friday afternoon by a vote of 43 to 20. The assembly is expected to follow suit. The vote comes as the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times reported today that Cuomo aides, including Secretary to the Governor Melissa DeRosa, pushed state health officials to edit a July report so only residents who died inside long-term care facilities were counted among COVID deaths and not those who later died at a hospital. Meanwhile, the continuing feud between Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio escalated further yesterday. The mayor has accused the governor of portraying New York City as a nightmare to distract from his unfolding scandals. People in this city are fighting back and we are recovering quickly, strongly. And you would think any governor would support that and celebrate that, not denigrate it. But clearly he's trying to distract attention from his own problems. He's got three women who have brought forward allegations of inappropriate activity and sexual harassment. He has a nursing home scandal and a cover-up related to that scandal. Uh, He's trying to distract attention away from that. And people are smarter than that. They understand uh, that everyone in this city is moving heaven and earth to come back strong. He should address his own problems not try and put down the people in New York City. But to paint an apocalyptic picture, I mean, that's what Donald Trump would have done. You know, throw out 
some uh, sharp terminologies and gaudy pictures of what's happening that don't resemble the reality. Look at this city. Go around the neighborhoods of the city. People are fighting back. Neighborhoods are vibrant. We're turning the corner. Mayor de Blasio, and when you compare a big state Democratic governor to President Trump, former President Trump, there must be some bad blood. De Blasio has been toying with the idea of his own gubernatorial bid, possibly setting the stage for the sort of Democratic primary clash not seen since the bitter feud between Ed Koch and Mario Cuomo decades ago. Today, White House Press Secretary was asked if Vice President Kamala Harris would speak out on the sexual harassment controversy that's been vexing Cuomo since three women have accused him of bullying behavior and sexual harassment. Harris, in 2017, had called on then-Senator Al Franken to resign. Then Harris said sexual misconduct should not be allowed by anyone. The White House press secretary. President's views that she believes all women should be treated with respect. Their voices should be heard. They should tell their story. There's an independent investigation that is happening now being overseen by the New York Attorney General. And she certainly supports that. And hopefully all of the individuals who have come out should see that as her point of view and one that I'm happy to reiterate on her behalf. So why won't she say that? Uh, again, I think I'm, I'm speaking on her behalf. This is the White House. That's the benefit of doing this briefing every day. Harris, who spent many years prosecuting sex crimes, was a staunch critic of Brian Kavanaugh and a supporter of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's allegations of assault against him. She grilled the justice during his confirmation hearing and then called for his impeachment after he had been confirmed to the Supreme Court. Closer to home, Mayor Bill de Blasio released a draft of the city's police reform and reinvention collaborative plan on Friday. With 36 proposals, the mayor says the draft of the city's plan focuses on five goals, transparency and accountability to the people, community representation, recognition of racialized policing, decriminalization of poverty, and a diverse, resilient, and supportive NYPD. The mayor's plan comes in response to an executive order issued by Governor Cuomo after unrest last summer following the police killing of George Floyd. Cuomo's order applies to the entire state. But police accountability activists say the plan is trash partly because they weren't consulted and because of some bad optics. Lumumbe Bandele is an organizer with the Malcolm X grassroots movement. He says the mayor's plan is an affront to the black community. He's actually calling for an expansion of NYPD um, hands into other areas that it does not belong. He's calling for elevating like feedback of communities through Comstat. He's calling for broadening of the precinct councils. He's calling for consolidating like NYPD oversight, you know, strengthening the CCRB through some really flawed kind of approaches. And many of the things that we're really calling for, even the attempts of things in terms of transparency and accountability, really don't meet those outcomes. It's not what's actually going to happen. What we see here is really a PR stunt. Much of what's being presented here, especially if we look at the database, this is an opportunity for the NYPD to begin to document ways that they are going to be elevating officers of color and all this other it's it really does not do anything to help prevent loss of life to help prevent police misconduct harassment or anything particularly with respect to black communities none of this in fact everything that's been presented here has been discussed in other areas and have been shared that these are not things that our communities have been asking for and furthermore what you know it really starts off and one of the reasons why many of us are so angry it starts off 
really exploiting the names of people who have been killed by the police in a real disgraceful way. They list the names of Ramali Graham, Eric Garner, a number of other people. The mayor's office totally disrespected every one of those people's families. Every one of them refused to meet with them for years. And now they're attempting to call their names in this process. This is disgraceful. Can you point out any specific parts of the mayor's proposal, not really what it's said to be? Precinct councils are really a small group of people throughout New York City who have been handpicked by NYPD to participate in this process. People who are very critical of overall policing don't have space to contribute in police councils. Right. That's number one. So that all of that is, has always been smoke and mirrors. But I think what really also is a fundamental issue here is that it's being presented as a collaborative process. This was not a collaborative process. People who were supportive of policing policies, were supportive and had great, good relationships with NYPD and the mayor's office participated in this process. But the people who have been working around police reform issues for decades in New York City were not able to participate in this process. And when others actually were beginning to reflect some of what our demands were, none of that is reflected in this document here. What would you like to really see happen? I would like to see the NYPD institutionally removed from many of the things that they're proposing that they continue to have a presence in. So we're talking about issues around homelessness. We don't want NYPD hands and issues of homeless services. We don't want NYPD shifting their control over school safety to another NYPD control. We want police-free schools, right? We don't want to have a joint response to mental health issues with NYPD and mental health professionals. We don't want NYPD involved any at any point. So this idea of still maintaining a presence and control is really the opposite because they're not listening. It's tone deaf. All across the country, people are saying that we need to have other ways of approaching safety in our communities, that law enforcement has failed, has failed. And this is an expansion of failed systems. Lumumbe Bendele is an organizer with the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. In related news, earlier this week, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, or CCRB, in charge of civilian oversight of the NYPD, made its database of police disciplinary records public. They include information on complaints from more than 83,000 active and inactive NYPD officers. But a series of lawsuits by police unions had blocked the publication of the records until this week until the courts ruled the records could be made public. A senior staff attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights is Darius Charney. The law was repealed in June and, you know, the, the police unions tried to muck things up with uh, the lawsuit here in New York City. They filed in uh, July and we finally got a um, go ahead from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals uh, earlier this week, which lifted what uh, was a stay that was in place uh, for several months on uh, public release by the city of officer discipline records. That stay has now been lifted. Um, the city, the, I'm sorry, the police unions lost their appeal of a lower court decision which had denied them the stay. Um, so yeah, there, there are no longer any uh, obstacles to New York City uh, making police disciplinary records transparent. And where are they available? Where can you go to get them? Well, there already, I believe, is on the Civilian Claim Complaint Review Board website, there is a link to a database where they have misconduct records on uh, NYP officers, I think, going back to, you know, maybe the 1980s. So it's pretty comprehensive. I think you can search by 
uh, officer name. You can search by precinct. Um, I think you may even be able to search by like the type of misconduct allegation and you will get, you know, basically an officer's disciplinary history. If there had been a complaint filed against them with the CCRB, you'll get information on the outcome of that investigation. And then, you know, if, if it was substantiated, you'll get information about what discipline was imposed on them, um, what discipline was recommended by the CCRB, and then whether or not the NYPD agreed with that recommendation. So you can get a lot of information, not only about officers' misconduct histories, but you get, I think, a, a good window into how, you know, officer discipline works and how the NYPD, you know, relates to the Civilian Complaint Review Board and, and vice versa. How does this uh, dovetail with the mayor's police reforms, which are somewhat controversial? Well, it remains to be seen. I know earlier today the city released its proposed plan, reimagining and reinventing policing in New York City, which was something that was required by an uh, executive order issued by Governor Cuomo last summer. There was a lot of uh, people have been waiting a while for this report. It'll be interesting to see if there's anything in there which really was a departure from kind of the same old same old we've heard about police reform in the past years in terms of the NYPD's answer usually to problems that are raised by the community is training, which the record has shown that that doesn't really seem to, to make much of a difference. I'm hoping to see something more visionary and frankly meaningful than training, but I, I guess we'll see. Are defense uh, lawyers around the city jumping in to use this new database? I hope so. I mean, just got launched, I think, earlier this week. So we'll see. I think it's going to be a great tool. And, and hopefully those folks will be able to take advantage of it and really open up and make more transparent the NYPD's disciplinary system. Yeah, it always seems like it was the tools were being given to the prosecutors. Uh, the Supreme Court yep. decision after decision were giving more tools. And I heard that. It's interesting. It's almost the first time I've heard of we're getting tools from a defense attorney. Yes. Ever. Exactly. Um, exactly. So hopefully it will be put to good use to help criminal defense attorneys and civil rights lawyers do their jobs better and be more effective. But I guess time will tell. Darius Charney is a senior staff attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights. And that's some of the news for Friday, March 5th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.